right, good morning. So if you are visiting with us, my name is David Morris. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Sulphur Community Church. We're glad you're here this morning. Uh, last week, we, uh, we began to do something uh, for, for, that we're going to be studying for over the course of the, the upcoming year, uh, 2020. And so uh, I'm going to go ahead and give this introduction. And we'll kind of do this periodically because we do know some people will um, be coming along in our church and may not know exactly what's going on. Uh, but last week we began a story through uh, a study through the whole story of the Bible. Uh, the goal is that we want to see uh, what's called the meta narrative, the big picture, what's going on over the course of all of Scripture from beginning to end, and how does all of that communicate to us the story of God, man, and His plan of redemption. And so, uh, one of the things that we are doing this year. Uh, that we're trying out for the first time is our, our, our elders, along with uh, Joey Sedlock, who's one of our teachers, have put together a, a guide, a study guide that will go out each week. Um, so one of the things, if you are visiting with us and you haven't done so, there are some cards like this in the back that you can fill out. I encourage you to do that. Or, I know we have a slide, you can text the number. This is e- that way is easier. Text the number, indicate that you do want to receive text messages, and each week at, uh, after our service on Sundays, we're going to have a text message go out, and it'll have a link where you can actually go to our website. Or you could just go to the website, because it is on the website, uh, sulfurcommunitychurch.com, and you can go to our resources. You'll find this week's message. You can click on it and download it. And it's a guide that looks like this. So last week, uh, we had week one go out, and so what it'll do is it'll walk you through um, some assigned reading. And then it'll have some questions that'll prompt you to examine scripture. Kind of things like, okay, what do I see, right? What's going on in the original audience? What's going on from the original author? What was he intending to communicate? And then it'll walk you through, okay, now how do I apply that to my life? What difference does that make to me? And then it'll walk you through prayer. And then uh, we also have an additional resource, and so... Uh, I brought it, and I'll kind of—I'll probably bring it every time I preach. But we're following the outline of the Jesus Storybook Bible. Now, this is a children's Bible. Um, it's very helpful, um, regardless of age. Uh, I know um, Nellie and I were talking uh, yesterday. One of the questions uh, from last week's guide was, "What's your favorite story from the Old Testament?" And, and mine is the—is uh, where we've got a, a, a sacrifice where a father is about to slay his son, and course God intervenes there and he provides uh, ram and thicket but when we read the story from this by both of us were like we got chills because it's not the same authority as scripture right but it's helpful it's a summary and it kind of helps us think about and consider and it's a launching point for discussion so I would encourage you to use this too especially if you're a parent but also uh, I know I had some text messages last week from adults in our church like hey we want to get that we want to follow along it's a helpful resource for you so all that to say, that will go out again this week. We'll have week two. If you're visiting with us, I do have some printed guides in the back for this week after this week's message. So I'll be back there. You can come see me. Uh, if you got last week, I just want you to know every week you will have the title page and you will have the introduction. The reason for that is because the introduction has some good information on how to use the guide. And so this week, somebody may step in, and they're starting with week two. We want them to have that introduction to go along with the material. So um, big, big thank you to the creative team who's helped us pull this off as well. So last week, we kind of set the tone for the series. We were in Psalm 19, uh, specifically verses 7 through 11. 
And uh, we were looking at what God's special revelation has, right? So the psalmist David, is, he, he talks about in verses 1 through 6, God's general revelation, how we can see God's glory in all of Scripture. And, and we saw that verse uh, kind of summarized in verse uh, 1 of Psalm 19, where the psalmist wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Well, that's the general revelation of God. We spent our time last week in the special revelation, which is God's word. It's, it's scripture, what he, what he has inspired authors to write and preserve for us so that even today we might benefit. And we saw all the ways that David described the benefits that scripture has for us. And then we also left here with an implication of, but don't miss Jesus, right? Because in John chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to the Jews, and he's giving this, this list. There's six witnesses that, that he calls on that are, are basically testifying to who he is. He is the Son of God. And one of those witnesses was Scripture. He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. But it is they that bear witness about me. And so what we wanted to make sure is, as you know, the beginning of the year, we're all like, really excited. We all want to dive into scripture. This is going to be the year, right? We want to make sure that even if it is the year, even if you read cover to cover this year, that you don't miss what scripture is saying. It's, it's talking about Jesus. It's pointing us to our Savior. He's the one that was sent to rescue us. So let's not miss that because in him is life, not the words on the page, right? So that's where we were last week. Well, and this week is kind of neat because we get to go look at general revelation. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. So go ahead and open up your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1. And this is where we get to see how his general revelation came to be. What that means is that you can see his glory in creation, right? The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The sky is proclaiming his handiwork. Uh, Paul said something similar in Romans chapter 1, right? Where he, he talks about how God's Invisible attributes, namely his divine power. You can see his glory in the things that have been made, in his creation. He has revealed himself. It's a general revelation to all of man. So as we dive into Genesis chapter 1, we're going to be looking at what Dee Dee read for us. And I know it was lengthy because I'm not going to read through it this morning. I, there's some of this I will read, but I wanted you to... It's, by the way, it is okay for us to sit, stand in a room with a bunch of kids making noise and just let the word be read over us. It's okay for that. It's okay to just pause for a moment and think about, consider all that scripture has for us. This morning, because of the length of the passage that I'm in, I'm not going to read every single word, but I will read you some of the key things and then we'll go through um, the rest of it. But it's Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. And before we do that, I, wanted, I just want to discuss a couple of general ideas so that we're informed as we approach this text. Uh, obviously, Genesis 1, in our day, this text will come up often with a debate between like Big Bang Theory and creation, and then every different thought in between those, whether it's like evolutionary creation, right, or everything in between, this text will come up. And also, it's also debated among the church. We look at the, the order of creation, and we have different views on the duration of creation. Creation. There's the gap theory, where Genesis 1-1, God creates everything, 
and then there's this gap in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 where something happens of cosmic catastrophe happens, and then you see that in verse 2, and then you see God recreating everything. That's called the gap theory. There's something called the day-age theory, and that's kind of coming from 2 Peter, where a day is to the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So is it literally one day? No, it's more of a description of the ages that creation took place in. There's the framework hypothesis, which is not necessarily a comprehensive explanation of creation, but you have a mix of history and you have a mix of poetry. And so it's overall just providing us a general framework to describe the different stages in, in which creation took place. And then you have the literal six-day creation, right? You, you take the plain text and you, you come away, you walk away, and it's six literal days that God created these things. We're not going to talk about that this morning. They're helpful. They're beneficial for us to consider. But I want to tell you why we're not going to do that. Because when we study Scripture, one of the basics of studying Scripture, we talk about it in our Bible study methods class, we always want to start with what is the authorial intent? What is the author intending to communicate? In this case, we have Moses. What is Moses intending to communicate to his original audience? That's where we need to start. We need to start there and not just fast forward to where we are today. When Moses wrote this, when he was inspired by God to record these things, he was not addressing evolution. He was addressing idolatry. When Moses wrote this, it wasn't to give a scientific explanation for creation, because that's not what is important at this time that he wrote these things. And that's, you can see that in the fact that creation is two chapters in the, the, the Pentateuch, the, the collection of the first five books of the Bible. He gives two chapters. So if you just look at space, what, what's primary there? Is, is the emphasis necessarily on creation? No. His intent is to reveal God as the only God. His intent here is to show him as that he is the creator of everything. He is supreme. He is sovereign. He is worthy of our complete allegiance and devotion. That's why Moses wrote this. The second thing I want to address is in regards to relationship between Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, and 2, 4 through 25. Because we're only going to be looking at Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. You will go home, and I'm encouraging you to read the whole thing, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But there's a debate among biblical scholars on whether or not these are two separate creation narratives. So the, the thought here is Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 is one way to communicate how God created things. And Genesis 2, 4 through 25 is a completely separate thing. And there, there's some reason that people believe that. There's some differences in, in the Hebrew words that are used. Uh, God's name in, in, in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 is Elohim. And then you get to 2, 4 through 25, and all of a sudden you have a different name. It's Yahweh Elohim. There's, there's questions on the order in which things were created. So in Genesis 1, you see that God creates dry land and brings forth vegetation. And later on, he creates man. In Genesis 2, 4 through 25, it's like before there was any bush that had grown, before man had tilled the soil, then God created man. And so there are some questions that we have to wrestle with. We're not going to talk about that this morning. 
I hope, I hope you go home and, and study it. I can tell you where I fall. I, I'm going to fall in the traditional Christian camp on this and say that it's a continuation. It's not com- two separate narratives. I'll tell you why. Um, and like I said, you go home, you test it, you look into it for yourself. Okay, Google addicts, don't do that right now. Because I know like some of you are already like, oh, let me look into that. I've never heard of that before. Just go home and do it. But this is what I see. I see it as a continuation. I see Genesis 1 as a panorama, and I see Genesis 2 as a closer up view. I see Genesis 1 stating that man was created on the sixth day, with Genesis 2 providing a commentary of how that took place. I see Genesis 1 providing us with a chronological record of God's creation. I see Genesis 2 as a topical record of God's creation. There's a specific focus there. I see information in Genesis 1. I see amplification of that information in Genesis 2. I see a description of the cosmic world in Genesis 1, and I see a more localized description of a garden in Genesis 2. I see Elohim's general relationship with the world in Genesis 1, and I see Yahweh's relationship with man in Genesis 2. I see God's majesty and his transcendence in Genesis 1, and I see his intimacy in Genesis 2. I see God revealed in the work of creation in Genesis 1. I see God revealed in creation in Genesis 2. I see it as a continuation. Test it. By all means, I want to be right. But that's the way I see it today. Our time, however, will be spent on Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 and looking at the authorial intent. And I'm very excited. I, I shared with our worship team this morning, Genesis is my favorite book of the Old Testament. Probably because, like many of you, that's like the one book that we make sure we always read every year. But I've seen so much of the gospel in Genesis from the very beginning. It just, and I was never taught this growing up, right? Like most of the time as the New Testament church, where do we spend the bulk of our time? The New Testament. And that's why our elders have decided we want to give a healthy dose of both Old Testament and New Testament, right? That's why this series came to be. We want to give you a, a picture of the whole thing so you have an appreciation and understanding of all of Scripture. And Genesis is rich. And I've, I've studied this probably 10, 12 times in my life. And even still this time, I learned something new. I was telling Trent, it, it's going to be hard for me to, to narrow this down. I'm, I'm praying that I'm clear this morning because there's so much, there's so many thoughts that come from this. It's inexhaustible. Just in the first chapter. Genesis 1-1, we see that, that, that well, I guess we're very familiar with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But what do we see there? First thing is we see before the beginning of creation, God was. Right? It, Moses, the only way he can think about it is like, I've got to bring you back to the beginning. But even in the beginning, God was already there. So what we see here is that God is eternal. Like He always was, He is, and He will always be. He's talking about the eternal nature of God. The second thing He says is that God created everything. He created the heavens and the earth. And that's the way that He kind of captures all of creation. Moses said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens and everything in them. He created the earth and everything in it. Everything. He's the creator of all things and he also created all of this 
prior to anything else being in existence. There was God, and there was nothing. He created all things out of no thing. That's what the Latin term for that is, ex nihilo, right? How many of you have heard that before? Wow. Raise your hand if you've heard it. It's okay. We... <laughs> ah, nice. I know what song you're talking about. Um, so there was nothing, and then there were all things. We have a hard time understanding that, right? Because anything we want to create, it's, it, there's a starting point, right? Like even if I want to be the most creative person in the world, I'm influenced by something else. If I want to build something out of wood, guess what? There was a tree there. Even the ideas we have. Like, we can try to be the most creative person in the world, but even our ideas have a starting point somewhere. God was, and there was nothing else. And then out of that comes everything. As the creator of all things, there, this is an implied statement of God's sovereignty. As the creator of all things, he is in control of all things. In the days that Moses wrote this, the pagan gods were all identified with different aspects of creation, right? And if you've grown up learning anything about mythology, you've heard this before. You had the, the sun god, you had the, the moon god, you had god of the rivers, the different rivers, you had god of anim different animals. So when Moses wrote this to his original audience, what he was showing is, hey, look, even those things that you attribute certain gods to, God created all of that. He is supreme. He is sovereign. He is the one that created all things. And that would give confidence to the Israelites that this is the God worthy of their trust. That all these other pagan gods that are influencing their lives, they don't want to turn themselves over to them because they are nothing. There is one God, and he created all things. From the very beginning of Scripture, in the first ten words, we see there is one God, he is eternal, he is before all things. He is the creator of all things. And he created all things out of nothing. And he is sovereign over all of creation. How foolish it would be for these people to serve and worship anyone but him. How foolish it would be for us to serve and worship anything but him. Genesis 1-2 he continues and he says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We have a description of the state of the earth here. And how is it described? Without form and void. That's chaotic language. There's chaos. There are words used to describe disorder and emptiness. Without form, void. Nothing, empty. We also see darkness, which is the absence of light. This is like an endless abyss of chaos. But there's another comment there. Now, it's so subtle, but I don't want you to miss it. It said, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That stood out to me this week. I never really paid attention to that. Because even in the chaos, and even in all that darkness... God was there, and he was hovering over it. And the, 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 the kind of the, the words that are used there in the Hebrew are kind of, it's like a, describing like a, a, a mother bird flapping her wings over her nest, hovering over her young, protecting them, nurturing them, and just, like, I just picture like this big eagle, like, you know, flapping its wings over its nest. 
And that's kind of what the picture is when, when Moses is describing this. Is the Spirit of God was hovering over all of that. Some of you need to hear that this morning. That's not the main point here. But that is an implication. It's in the chaos, in the darkness, God is still present. Oftentimes, the darkness exists in our lives because, not because God turned his back on us, but because we have turned our back on him. But he's there, always. And then we transition into Genesis 1-3. And as we do so, this is where the creation narrative, this is where things start to come into existence. And it gives a day-by-day description of God's work of creation. And I was trying to figure out how best to describe this for you because there is an outline. And it's really neat how God did the things that he did. And verbally, I was afraid we would miss something. So I have a visual aid for you. And and Caitlin, you can actually leave this up as we walk through the, the order of creation. But we have a general outline of Genesis 1. And you'll see there's a column there that says without form. That's one of the descriptions. And there's a column there that says void. And then you have day 1, day 2, day 3, and the verses that are related. And then you have day 4, day 5, day 6. And so in general terms, what we see here is God addresses the fact that the earth was without form, that there was no order. And how does he do so? Day 1, light into darkness. Day 2, separates sea and sky. Day 3, creates fertile land. He creates the space. And then he fills it. So he addresses the void issue. But there's parallel between day one, day four, day two, day five, and day three, and day six. So when he creates light on day one, when he fills, he says there's objects of light. So he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. When, after he separated the, the sea and the sky on day two, it parallels with day five where he creates the creatures of the sea and the sky. Day six In parallel to day three where he creates the fertile land, he brings forth vegetation, then he fills that land with animals, beasts, creeping things. And his creation just builds on itself until we get to the peak, right? The climax at the very end of chapter one when he creates man in his image. That, when you, uh, Didi in her prayer, she prayed about the thoughtfulness that God displayed in his creation. That is thoughtfulness. That's something that only God would think to do, right? Just that little bitty thing that says, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to throw them this. And one day, David Morris at Sulphur Community Church, he's going to stumble across this and it's, he's going to get a taste of my glory. That's neat. In a nerdy way, I guess, but that's neat. So let's walk through day one. Uh, Genesis 1, 3 through 5. Where there was complete darkness, God replaced it with light. God simply spoke. And at the transforming power of his word, light, well, that was a bad snap. I snapped better than that. Light into darkness, just like that. He spoke and light into darkness. He said, let there be and there was. God saw that it was good, that it was useful, it was fitting, it was healthy, it it, it enhanced life. He looked at it and said, that's good. And then he separated the light from the darkness. So already at the very beginning, you're starting to see the separation that God does create division. So later on when he says, Israel, separate yourself from the things of this world, that's what God does. He separates the light 
from the darkness. And then he named them. He named the light day and the darkness night. To, the, to Israel, the naming of things illustrated dominion. It was dominion over the things that were named by the one who named them. That's why you see later on, when God gives Adam dominion over the earth, he says, hey, name the animals. They are yours. You have dominion over them. Subdue them. So when God names day and night, what do we see? Once again, sovereignty, supremacy. He is over all things. Day two, God created an expanse in the midst of the water. So he separated the sky and the sea. So again, you see God doing what? Creating order. What was once a mixture? And look, we don't know because none of us were there. No one was there. But it's a mixture of some sort of like fog-like mist that just existed, that was merged together. God says, let there be an expanse between the two and let the waters in the heavens and the waters on the, in the seas be separated. And then he said the word, the phrase, it was so. We don't see that day one, do we? We see that some of the other days, but we don't see it was so in day one. And so I ask the question, why? There is a reason, because it was so, it indicates that something is permanent, that is fixed. Day one, we don't see that. Why? Because light and darkness alternate. Day and night alternate. So it's not permanently fixed, but this expanse is. So what, what we have here is that sea and sky are separated, and they will never again be joined back together, but they will coexist in that way. Separation. It's also interesting at the end of day two, we don't see any mention of God looking at it and saying, it is good. It's the one day he didn't do that. Don't get caught up on that. Because at day six, he says, all of my creation is very good. So I don't know why he didn't say it. <laughs> there, are some, there are some cases and kind of explanations. None of them are like really like strongly, overly convincing to me. I don't think that's important. <laughs> Maybe it is, but... It, Maybe one day God will reveal it to me. I, I, don't, I don't know. But day two, he, he separates the sea and the sky from each other. Day three, God's still creating order as he displays his control of the seas. And that's something consistent that we see throughout all of Scripture, right? Because the seas are always like this chaos, right? It's, it's evil. You have like Jesus at one point controlling the seas, the seas that were about to kill the disciples, and he goes out and says at his word, stop, and it stops. Something that is uncontrollable to man, but only God can control, and you see it from the very beginning when he creates borders for the seas. He's like, you can't go there, and you can't go there, because out of that comes up dry land. God did that. And then he brings forth vegetation. So now you're starting to see flourishing in God's creation. He's bringing forth this vegetation, and he's saying, all right, produce. These plants are described as producing seed according to their own kind. That's the order that God created these things in. So day three concludes, and it concludes with that section where he's taking this earth that is without form, and he's establishing order. And then we transition into 
him filling the void. So day four, parallel to day one, where he creates light, now he creates objects of light. The greater light that we know today is the sun to rule the day. The lesser light, the moon. And then he says, as well as the stars. The burning ball of fire, literally, light years away, that we can't really fully comprehend, God created that by the power of his word. Like some of you might, I don't know, if you enjoy like science and you enjoy the things like astronomy and like the things in outer space and the sun, the moon. I mean, how long did it take man to get to the moon, allegedly? Uh, and that was a big thing, right? And I love, I, I love this. It's almost like the stars are just mentioned in like passing, like they're not a big deal, right? Like Moses here says he created the greater light and the lesser light. Oh, yeah, he created the stars too. And like think about like over the course of the history of man, what the stars have meant. Like at one point God says, hey, you see all the stars? Can you count them? That's how great your family's going to be. That's the number. Can you count them? You can't. And over the course of history, man has spent so much time trying to figure out what are these stars. We've spent time mapping the stars, charting them out. We've spent time trying to figure out if there's any more new ones. And here it's almost like no big deal. The sun, the moon, oh yeah, and the stars too. How magnificent is a God who can create something like that and then be almost like a side note. Day five, parallel to day two, God takes that separation of sea and sky and he fills it with their own creatures. And he does use some language here again because in Israel at this time, they're being influenced by the pagan religions around them. And so he talks about the great sea creatures. And that again is a consistent scene that you see throughout scripture where there's this Leviathan is one that's commonly listed, right? It's a common name, like this pagan evil creature out of the sea and so what does Moses do to address that he's like yeah I want you to know that he created all the things and filled the sea and filled the sky with these things let me go ahead and throw in so you understand like that's even the pagan things that they think exist like the deep sea monsters like he created all those two which means he's sovereign over those two those are not out of his control and then at the first sign of life God blesses his creation. We haven't seen this yet. He blesses his creation and he commands them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the void, to fill the earth. Day six, parallel to day three, in which God created the fertile land and he brought up vegetation, God fills it with livestock, beasts, creeping things. And once again, similar to the plants, the vegetation that was created, they're and according to their own kind. There's order. And then on day six, he creates mankind. So I just want to, just so there's no misunderstanding, if I use the word man, I'm speaking of mankind in general. I'm not talking, there's no gender bias here. We see that in Genesis 1, that God created man and woman in his image. That's how mankind was created, male and female. 
equal value. I just don't want you to get hung up on that. He always talks about men. Mankind. And when he does, the language used to describe this act of creation, this work of creation, is certainly different. You don't see that same pattern of, and God said, let there be, and there was, and he saw it was good, and there was evening and morning that day. What do you see? It's something completely different. He says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Because on day six, we've reached the climax of creation, and we learn that we are the crown jewel, his crown jewel of creation. We are the one, his most prized creation. Notice the plurality, us and our. Through the progression of revelation, as we see it in scripture, that allows room for that understanding of God always existing in the Trinitarian God, like the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so what we have already is we have God speaking, we have the Spirit of God hovering. We don't see anything about the Son necessarily yet, but where do we see Him? John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, and all things that were created were created through Him, and for Him, and by Him. Nothing that was created was ever created that He did not create Himself. That may be the first time some of you have heard that. I've gotten used to that, but that blew my mind. That from the very beginning, you see God. One God, right? We've seen that in Genesis 1.1. That was the point Moses wrote. But we also see the plurality, the multiple persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit there in the beginning. He says, let us make man in our image. That's what's known as the Imago Dei. We had a series titled the Imago Dei, the image of God. All humans, all of mankind, male and female, rich and poor, from every different tribe and nation and tongue, skinny and fat, addict, sober, every single person has ever walked the face of this earth, is created in the image of God. It creates worth. That's how we understand our worth. We are his most treasured creation. I'm, not, I'm trying not to steal the thunder because I already talked to Joey about chapter 3. But how do you view your brother and sister just across the room? Do you view them as God's most treasured creation? What about your spouse? What about your children? Are, do you view them as God's most treasured creation? Not yours. God's most treasured creation. What about yourself? Some of you might struggle with self-worth. And I'm not trying to boast you and puff you up. But God loves you. He treasures you. He created you in His image. In his image, we're not only finding our, our value, our worth, and our identity, but we also find our purpose. Because what it means to be created in his image is that we are to reflect his characteristics. We are to display his attributes. We are to make him known. The traditional Christian way of saying that is we are to glorify him. 
That's, that's what that means. To reveal to the world who God is. To put him on display. Why? Because he is good. That's why. How do we do that? How do we make him known? Well, one of the ways that we see here, he says, let them have dominion. Later he says, subdue the earth. The rest of the earth is ours to steward. It is ours to, to, to figure out how to maximize the potential that would glorify God on this earth. For some of us, it may be artwork. For some of us, we like to build things. We like, maybe, some of you may like to assemble children's toys at Christmas morning and or Christmas, Christmas Eve night where there's all the million pieces and you end up with the extra ones. You don't know what to do with them. For some, it's cooking. For some, it's writing a paper or building an Excel spreadsheet. But all these things, right? Like, I just saw somebody, and so y'all, some of y'all are going to know who I'm talking about. Decorating your home. We were created... To be cre- we were created to be creative like him. To take these, this creation that he has spoken into existence and to harness its potential and do what we need to do to figure out how to make it more glorifying to God. That's why we exist. We also see a way that we can do that is in community with one another. We see the community between male and female just like we see the community between God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He created us in His image. In chapter 2, it's the first time we see that God in His creation said something's not good. And that was for man to be alone, for man not to have a helper fit for him, because the animals and the beasts and the creeping things, they weren't cutting it. And so God created woman, so there would be a community between one another. When we engage in a healthy community with other image bearers, when we love one another, when we care for one another, we glorify God. That's who He is. Just in the amount of space given to the creation of man and woman, if you look at the creation era, like I mentioned how creation itself is two chapters and all of the Pentateuch, the first five books. Okay, we'll just look within the creation narrative, those first two chapters, how much space is given to the creation of man? Far more than the creation of everything else, right? Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, you get through that, then you focus on man. And even in Genesis chapter one, there's more space given to man than there is everything else. Then you go to Genesis chapter two, and we have a more close-up view of what happened, what actually took place. It's easy to see that We are God's greatest creation, that we are the most treasured among all things. And then day six ends with God taking a look at everything that he created. And what does he see? He sees something that's not just good, but very good. Very good. On day seven, when creation is finished, God rests. He blesses and he makes holy. Rest literally means ceasing, or where we get the term 
Sabbath. But it's not resting in the terms that we think of. When we've had a a long and a hard week at work, we look forward to a day of rest, right? To recover. God is not tired from creating. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is God taking that moment to step back, look at everything that he has created, and enjoy it. It's celebrating the accomplishment that he has done, celebrating the completion of his work of creation. So when he rests, that's what he's doing. So when you write your paper and you finish, and you put a lot of work and effort into it, it's not the one you procrastinated on, and you take a step back and man, that's, that's a good piece of work. When you decorate your home and you figure out all the little different things on a budget that you can put in certain places and then you take a step back and you look at it and it's like, that's beautiful. When you build that Excel spreadsheet and it's got all the different formulas in it and you've got pivot tables and then you're able to build in formulas and lock it so nobody can break it, you take a step back and like, man, I'm proud of that. The gumbo, the painting, the drawing, it's that feeling of when you're done and you've given all this effort and energy into it and you just enjoy it. That's what God's doing on day seven because it's very good. Last week we talked about what, what do we look for when we study scripture. We don't want to just jump to what does scripture say about me? Like it's all about me, I want to know what it says about me. We need to first start off with and say, what does it say about God? What, the summary points that we walk away from, from this. What, what does this tell us about God? First is that God is a redeeming God who changes darkness to light. He changes death to life and he changes chaos to blessing. He's a redeeming God. Secondly, he is completely sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over all life and everything else that contends for our attention, that wants to take it, that we turn ourselves over to. God is sovereign over all those things. He is supreme. And he accomplishes his work by the power of his word. What does he do by speaking? He creates, he redeems, he blesses, and he makes holy by the power of his word. But what difference does this make to us? Like, I understand, like, when Moses wrote this, there were some certain things going on with Israel, idolatry being number one. How does that relate to us? Well, obviously, idolatry still exists, right? When we closed out our, our, our study in, in 1 John, John kind of gave that warning, right? That's kind of like Blake, when Blake presented it, it's, like, it's almost like this afterthought of like, oh, yeah, by the way, protect yourself, guard yourself, don't, don't worship other things. Don't fall into idolatry. And we clearly see that we do that. That's the natural condition of man. When you, when you look at Romans chapter 1, what do we see? We see a description of man who has exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and birds and creeping things. All the little weird things that man has ever worshipped besides God, we've exchanged the glory of God. Think about what Paul just said. Man, created in his image to glorify him, has instead exchanged that glory and said, no, I'm going to worship this thing. We worship the creation rather than the creator. So idolatry certainly is definitely an implication. We should ask ourselves, what are we worshiping? Who are we worshiping? 
But how else? What, what else? What, what other difference does this creation story make to us? Well, let's take a look at the world around us. Would we describe the world around us as flourishing or as decaying? Would we describe it as holy or a downward spiral of unrighteousness? Would we see order or do we see chaos? That's the world. What, what about our own hearts? Would we see holiness or do we see evil? Do we live in the light or do we cling to the darkness? See, this creation narrative makes a difference to us because God is still God. He's the same today as he was yesterday in the very beginning. And he will be the same in the future when he restores all things to the way that he, was, he intended them to be. This matters to us because what was once very, very good is now not good. Death has been introduced. Chaos abounds in the form of earthquakes, tornadoes, and hurricanes. You have description of all of creation. All of creation is groaning, longing to be set loose from its bondage. Creation was affected. This matters to us because man's hearts are continually evil. The pinnacle of God's creation, created in his image to be in a close, intimate relationship with him, Paul describes us as now having exchanged that glory. Paul goes on in Romans, and what does he say? He says that no one seeks for God, no, not one. He says no one does good, not even one. We have all turned aside and we have become what? Worthless. Not good. Not helpful. Not useful. Not healthy. Why does the story of God's creation matter to us? Because where there is darkness, God brings light. Where there is chaos, God brings order. Where there is emptiness, God fills it with good. As we conclude this morning, turn with me to John chapter 1. I love how God did this. When God inspired the beloved disciple to record these words in John chapter 1, he did so in a way that would allow us thousands of years later to see the beauty of God's plan. And in John chapter 1, it's, it's like a reset of the creation story. And it's not because God screwed it up. It's because we did. And so God came behind us and he fixed it. So it's this reset of the creation story. And what do we find? We find Jesus, the God-man, who would fulfill the purpose that we were created for, to glorify God. You're going to see that. When John writes this description of the eternal word of God, you're going to see how no one has ever seen God. You want to know why? Because we failed at our purpose. We have not glorified Him. We have not made Him known. But the eternal Word did. Let's read John chapter 1, verse 1. 
verses 1 through 18, you're going to see some description here about John the Baptist. I thought about skipping it, but no, man, John the Baptist was part of God's plan too, so I want you to see that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. He created all things, and him is life. He is light in the darkness. He came into the world of chaos and set things right. Even though we were made in his image, and he was here among us, we had become so distorted, so far off the mark that we didn't even recognize him. But he glorified God, full of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And truth. He made him known. Paul has his own version of this in Colossians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 17. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for, for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's not only the creator, but he's also the sustainer. In him all things are hold, held together. The story of creation matters to us because our hearts are dark and our hearts are chaotic. But what does God do? He brings order. He brings light. I love how Paul describes it to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul thinks back to day one, Genesis 1-3, and said, that God, the God who said, let there be light and there was light, he shines light into our hearts too. And how does he do it? By revealing his glory through his son, Jesus Christ. One last implication that I found incredibly encouraging, and I'm going to be honest with you, I'm still, still trying to wrestle with it. It's, it's humbling. It's not like hard to understand in the sense of like my mind can't just get there. It's just hard for me because it's just a big truth, and I don't really, I don't know why. But before God did all these things, before he spoke a single thing into existence, for those of you who he has granted faith and repentance to, or that he will one day, you were on his mind. His most treasured creation. Before all that took place, you were on his mind. I was on his mind. How do I know this? Because in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, Paul wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. This is God's plan of redemption. This is not plan B for God. This has always been his plan. From the very beginning, before the foundation of the world, this is the story that God wrote. And today, what we've seen in Genesis chapter 1 is the beginning of the unfolding of this big picture story. This beautiful story of God's plan of redemption and the way that he saw fit best to glorify himself. In Christ, all things are being made new. In Christ, he will reestablish order and he will eradicate chaos and he will chase away darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. So if you haven't trusted in Christ, friend, trust in him today. And for those of you who have, praise God for his sovereignty and his majesty revealed in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. Let's pray. As we go into this time of prayer, our worship team is going to come up. And I just want to read a psalm to set our hearts. Very likely some of our hearts are already here, but in light of what we just studied, I found this to be very helpful in posturing myself. Psalm chapter 8. Think about these words as I read them. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, 
our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, we come to you with hearts of humility this morning as we we ask the same question, who are we that you are mindful of us? God, thank you for the confidence and the hope that you give us in your Son, Jesus Christ, that in our darkness and in our chaos, you bring light and order. Father, for, for those of us who, are, who feel empty, Father, you fill us with good. That you've given us value, that you've given us worth, you've given us a purpose. God, in this story of how you did all of those things, it's glorious. How majestic is your name in all of the earth. God, by the power of your spirit, your Holy Spirit, would you, would you allow us to see these things? Would you allow us to, to see your majesty in all of creation? Would you use us bring order to the chaos in this world. Father, would you use us to be a light into the darkness of this world as we have been created in your image. Let us fulfill the purpose that you've given us to glorify you here on earth, to make you known. Father, we know that we can only do that because of your son, Jesus Christ who has revealed to us your glory, who is the fulfillment of everything that we were intended to be and yet failed. And through him we find grace upon grace. We see that you are a God of truth, a God of mercy, a God of justice. God, that you are sovereign over all things. You are sovereign over the moments in our lives. Let us trust you. Father, as we see that you are supreme, let us worship you. Let us not give our devotion and exchange your glory for images of worthless things. As we go into this time of worship, Father, we know that in Christ we have our hope, that in Christ we are set free. Let us respond accordingly, God, with hearts of rejoicing at your good work for your glory. In Jesus' name.